You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month, we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, and with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. All right, my guest today is Tom Blanton. Tom is the founder of the National Security Archive, which is housed here at George Washington University. And it's very timely because there has just been the release by the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, of something referred to as the family jewels. And uh, Tom, I think in the course of our discussion, we can describe what those are. But I wonder if you would just start out by saying a little something about the National Security Archive. The archive was basically started by a group of historians and journalists about 20, 21 years ago after the Freedom of Information Act in our country had really produced a lot of paper. And I think some spouses were eager to get the paper out of their houses. And they created the archive <laughs> as a way. That's exactly right. They created the archive as a way to save their marriages. And But one of the things we inherited along with all these boxes of declassified documents were pending Freedom of Information requests. A lot of them can take five years, even 10 years. In today's paper, one of our studies shows the oldest pending request, still unfinished, goes back 20 years. Sometimes that's because the material is so sensitive and there's some real conflicts of interest, if you will, in balancing different national interests. Sometimes it's just bureaucratic incompetence. They just lose them, drop off the radar screen. There's no tracking number like a FedEx package. And so, so one of our roles in life is to follow up those really historically important freedom of information requests, get the documents loose, publish them on the web, make them available to scholars, and really raise the level of both scholarship and journalism so they're using primary sources, not anonymous sources. Okay. Has, does the archive uh, specialize in documents on, in, on the intelligence community or across the board, White House, intelligence community, whatever? More generally, national security. And this includes intelligence, obviously, and obviously also intelligence documents are the hardest to get. But we try to look at national security policymaking and figure out here are the key moments, here are the key decisions, here are the key times it was teed up for the president, what went into those choices, where's the State Department record, where's the Pentagon record, where's CIA's record, and then what is the White House staff saying? And 
on issues like, for example, Iraq war, there is a ton of documentation out today to help us better understand how President Bush decided to invade Iraq, what was the role of intelligence or lack of role um, in those decisions. That's what we're trying to do is to bring the, the point at which they're real primary sources for people to really study decision making, bring that closer to the present, not just wait 30 or 50 years because at that point the eyewitnesses are dead. And if you don't have eyewitnesses, then the documents themselves are a little flimsy because they don't tell the truth any more than memories do. You have to triangulate them with other evidence, and eyewitnesses can give you context and atmosphere, which is vital. And have you also collected documents that, that have come, in, come into your possession or you've been able to get that were not officially released by the government? That is, documents that, that as you know, there have been some instances, I'm thinking of the... Uh, Iranian takeover of the American embassy in 1979, and then the Iranians put documents out. And I think you have those in your collection. Exactly you know? right. We, we got a, these have been published by the so-called students in Tehran in a series of about 80 volumes. They pieced back together even some of the shreds from the shredders. The story we were told when we were in Iran a few years back was that when they seized the embassy, they then carried out the stacks of shreds and, and put them out in the motor pool on carpets and located them by the location in the embassy where the stacks were. Then they had people who were experienced rug knotters go through and sort the shreds by the kind of paper and the bias of the cut, like what angle was the cut. And only then, if you had them into little sub-piles, would you bring in your fluent English speakers who would match up the letter on one side of a cut to the other side of the cut. They've done 80 volumes of these records. Well, these were on the streets of Tehran, Paris. The Library of Congress had a set. KGB certainly had a set. We put an index together of them because people were trying to use them, very hard to use for scholars. We wrote a letter to CIA about six months before we published the index and said, just wanted you to know we've done an index. If you have any objection to our publishing, please let us know. We don't want to damage national security, get somebody killed. CIA never responded to us, but they did put in a purchase order with our publisher, and they were the first owner of the collection. <laughs> Nothing succeeds like success. Greatest marketing letter we ever wrote. Have you, are you, are you set up for scholars to visit and work there, like, you know, the Library of Congress? Where exactly. We have a small reading room on the top floor of the main library building at George Washington University, Gelman Library. But it's fascinating over the last 10 years with the growth of the internet and the web. These days we get hundreds of visitors who come in physically, we get millions of visitors on the website. Our hundreds of visitors who come in physically stand over the Xerox machine and make maybe 50, 70,000 pages of paper copies. The visitors who come to the website are downloading about 500,000 pages every day. Wow. It gives you a sense of the extraordinary growth of the web as a way to deliver information, and in this case, actual evidence and primary sources. I think you probably whetted everybody's appetite Tom, what is your, how can they access your, what is your website? It's, it's www.nsarchive.org, nsarchive.org, nationalsecurityarchive.org. It's based at George Washington University, but the actual gwu.edu um, address is so long and complicated with slashes and inyes. We have this basic portal, nsarchive.org. You can go there and see the war plan that General Tommy Franks briefed to President Bush. You can go there and download a nice little 27 megabyte copy of the CIA Family Jewels just released last week. And you can go there and pick up our latest audits of federal government performance under the Freedom of Information Act. Well, let's, uh, let's go to the Family Jewels since it's come up now. The, um, 
I, of course, was in the agency at the time. And very quickly, when did you found the National Security Archive? Um, I was, the original founders yeah. were Ray Bonner and Scott Armstrong of the New York mm -hmm. Times and Washington Post. And then I was hired as the first research director. And now the Peter Principle has taken over and I've risen to my level of incompetence. So I'm the, I'm the director, <laughs> been the director since 92, which is when we filed the Freedom of Information request for the Family Jewels. Okay. The Family Jewels, as, as I recall, were essentially the, the information that was presented, that was gathered together in the agency at the direction of, of then DCI Schlesinger. That's correct. And people reported what they, under, what, the, what they were concerned might be illegalities or improprieties, and those went to the inspector general who compiled them. Those became the family jewels, which later Director Colby drew on in briefing President Ford and Henry Kissinger about his briefings to Congress. And, and That's they, right. of course, were appalled at the, at the uh, detail that was in them being presented to Congress and finding its way into the public. But nevertheless, my recollection is uh, that Colby did present those to the Congress. He uh, briefed them to Congress, but it's interesting, the actual documentary records of both the Church and the Pike Committee investigation show that they did not give them a full copy of the family jewels until just maybe a week or two before the reports were being finished. That there was This was a struggle all the way through. They presented partial versions, censored versions. It was part of the negotiation, the attempt by the administration and the agency, I think, to limit those investigations. Was the summary document of the family jewels incorporated then into the final reports of the Church Committee and Pike Committee? As far as I know, the Church and Pike Committee never saw the six-page summary document that we found in the JFK Assassination Records Review Board uh, files. And this was Colby going to the Justice Department and the top lawyers, the acting attorney general, Lawrence Silverman, talking to him about what are the 10, 12, actually ended up being 18 major operations that would create the most trouble legally, most legal problems. And that list is fascinating because it goes from the ridiculous to the, to the really huge. So everything from the uh, cooperation with a sheriff in San Mateo, California on a polygraph test, which not quite sure why that was so illegal. Maybe the subjects were unwitting, but all the way up to a 20-year mail opening program at Kennedy Airport of every letter going back and forth to the Soviet Union. So um, it, it's an amazing, the summary gave us a really good sense of what was coming. I think looking at the jewels themselves, I was surprised that they weren't even quite as detailed as the church committee reports had been. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. 
Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Were they, uh, my impression, and I have not looked at the jewels, that is these, what, approximately 700 documents now released 700 by CIA. 700 pages, yes. Yes. That uh, a lot of them were, and I'll call them bureaucratic memoranda, right. of process, seeking approvals here and there, or advising people of one thing or another, which I thought would be reassuring in one sense that, that people would see uh, that the agency was was concerned about approvals or concerned about uh, operations which it believed to be directed by the you know requested by the right. White House or or requested by the State Department whatever. So I thought in that sense there would be something of a positive element, if you will. Well, I don't know that there's anything new for us in the Family Jewels. There, were, there were several really new items that really had never been written about before. For example, the activities of Division D at CIA, which is the wiretapping section, the sort of substitute part of CIA when the National Security Agency didn't have the capacity, say, to take on a job. The CIA would have this special Division D. And there's a whole back and forth with Division D and the Family Jewels that had never been reported on before where Division D takes on a wiretapping program of phone calls to and from Latin America in the United States, one end in the United States. And they take it on looking for drug information and they take it on because the National Security Agency doesn't want to do it. Then they ask the CIA General Counsel, is this legal? And this is before the wiretap law went into effect in 1978. So this is 72, 73. Is this legal? And the council says, nope, not legal stop it immediately, terminate the program, and they did. And what's interesting about that legal analysis is that, well, this issue is in the headlines today, wiretapping without a warrant, without going to a court, without doing it under the benefit of a statute. Is that legal or not? What's fast? CIA's general counsel said no. President Bush today says yes. And you makes you so wonder the, about the legal basis. The problems are contemporary. But, you know, your larger question is, how these these family jewels were even written. And that, that, to me, is a fascinating story because Director Schlesinger reads in his Washington Post one morning in the spring of 1973 that one of the Watergate burglars arrested at the Watergate, Howard Hunt, former retired CIA agent and spy novel author, prolific one, um, had gotten some help from the agency for some of the dirty tricks that he had done for President Nixon. And... Director Schlesinger comes in the office when he says, I'm tired of reading about, you know, our connections to Watergate in the newspaper. Tell me what's going on here. All you guys talk to his senior staff. You need to go back to your offices and have everybody write me a memo. Where have we gone off the reservation? Where have we violated the charter? Where do, what are our connections with these Watergate burglar guys? Is there anything that's questionable out there? Will you, you know, go and write me? And they all sat down and wrote these memos. And I, in the news stories, I've been quoted as saying it's like a series of senior CIA officers all coming into the confessional and saying, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. <laughs> Here's right. the detail. Some of them are very detailed, even chronologies of meetings and contacts, say, with Howard Hunt. Some of them are very cryptic, almost just bureaucratic little bullet points. Just wanted to make sure I'm covered here. I've told the director there's some bad news. So the range is fascinating. What's amazing to me is that they go from this, uh, there's one very personal one written to Bill Colby, who then was the number two in effect, the operations uh, director, later DCI that same year. It says, dear Bill, while I was serving in counterintelligence, 
down on the ground floor, there was this room that the rest of us were never allowed into. Only this one guy, Richard Ober, he would go in there, but always escorted. And there was something fishy going on down there. And there was a guy down there and he never got assigned to overseas duty. He was down there for all three years. I was working counterintelligence. Why would he have been focused just on domestic? I don't understand that. Bill, you might want to look into this. And this is very personal little little room, where it was, time period, and one guy. Turns out that was, in fact, MH Chaos, the infiltration of the anti-war movement. Yes, yes. And then there was another memo in the Family Jewels where it says, just sort of memo to the file, a lot of CIA employees really resent being expected to you know, contribute to the MH Chaos program, and which leads me to wonder, was it the objections to doing domestic work when people had a, you know, knew that their charter was for foreign intelligence? Or maybe people didn't want to grow their hair long and wear blue jeans in those days to have to go into the hippie movement. Yeah. No, I was at the agency then. It was the former. There were people who genuinely felt we should not be doing exactly. that. And, uh, of course, the response was that we've been directed to do this. Right. And so, but no, there were people. I knew a, a couple of chiefs of station at that really time. Really objected. Who conveyed their objections back to headquarters. And I will say one thing. Uh, there was no... Uh, retribution, that is, they, they still carried right. on as chiefs of station, did, you know, they carried out their assignments, exactly. and they just uh, did not carry out that assignment. But, you uh, know, you were saying directed to do it. I think this is really important because the church committee went off on this tangent calling the CIA rogue elephant, yes. I think was the phrase. Yes. But you read the family jewels and you see, even you read the church committee final report, you see that what the CIA did was very much at the direction of a whole series of presidents, from Truman all the way up through Nixon. Far from being a rogue elephant, yes, the agency was good at providing some deniability, yes. some cover, some separation so the president wouldn't be personally, say, tarred with the brush of assassinations. But the CIA was definitely carrying out what presidents wanted it to do. And that's maybe the larger lesson that when you have that capacity, it'd be very hard for a president to resist. You can get something done quick and dirty, no fingerprints, at least that's the illusion, except that illusion always turns out to be false. Yes, so many things eventually do come to light, but the CIA has always prided itself on being able to turn on a dime. I mean, remember exactly. we were the first in in Afghanistan and uh, right. lost span then. Built the U-2, one of the great intelligence successes of one all of the time. Great successes. Under yeah. budget and under yeah. schedule. So. Let me ask you one. I, I, I know we can't get in, we don't have time to get into all of the individual jewels, as it were. Right. But is there anything there which shows... Uh, what some of the media has reported, that is the greater involvement of, of Robert Kennedy in the uh, attempts to assassinate Castro. Those reports really came from the memoranda of conversations and not from the family jewels. One of the things we had rounded up, and I think one of the reasons CIA released the family jewels now, is that our freedom of information requests have become one of the oldest in its queue. Second, the director had to appear in front of a group of diplomatic historians, and you can't exactly expect to be applauded if you say, I'm going to keep all the secrets. He had to announce something, and Family Jewels has been on everybody's list for a long time. I think the third reason, there was a lot of other information out about the substance of the Family Jewels, like this summary from the Justice Department, and like these memorandum of conversations with President Ford and Henry Kissinger and DCI Colby, where the DCI is briefing the president about what's in there. And in those back and forths after Colby leaves the room, Kissinger says something like, ah, 
you know, this assassination stuff, it just makes the Kennedys look bad. They'll show Bobby Kennedy's up, with his, up to his eyeballs running the whole operation on Castro. Now, this is a matter of some great controversy. Arthur Schlesinger went to his grave earlier this year denying that the Kennedy brothers ever would have ordered assassinations because of their Catholic faith. And yet, from the point of view of the CIA officers who sat in those meeting rooms with Bobby Kennedy, I mean, Put it this way, the morning that they discover the missiles in Cuba in 1962, Bobby Kennedy goes from the briefing about the missiles in Cuba to a meeting of the special group augmented about sabotage and other operations, which we now know include assassination attempts in Cuba. You would think if you know that there are nuclear missiles in Cuba, you would tell your sabotage guys, all right, calm down. We've got to figure this out. We need a little breathing space. We've got some planning to do. Instead, Kennedy goes into that meeting and says, what are you doing? No, you know, is there any action happening? Where's the action? I want something bang here. What's going on? And the CIA people come out of that meeting seeing, oh, the pressure's on. We've got to produce. We've got to show big, let's go blow some things up. Let's go take some shots at people. And I think in that context, you very much get the message that the president's brother, the attorney general of the United States, is saying, do whatever you can to take out these people down in Cuba. Do you think that, uh, that, the, that, the, that these documents will have some impact on scholarship and books in the, in the years to come? Are you seeing sort of revelatory material which does, does truly give additional you know, insight into those years, into those programs, the degree to which they were vetted with the, with the Department of mm -hmm. Justice or, or were directed by the White House? It sounds to me like they while there may be very little that's startling, they certainly help give a more rounded picture of so many of those, of those pivotal events. More rounded picture, yes, absolutely. More sense of the bureaucracy in a way because the agency was in fact a bureaucracy in addition to being an intelligence agency and the, the way you write things for the file or the way the inspector general gets involved or even the chain of command, that's quite interesting. I think that this will also demystify the agency to a certain degree because even some of the sort of worst of the family jewels, the getting in bed with the mob to try to kill Castro, we've known so much of the detail about it. And I think the release of the family jewels will sort of ground a little bit of that discussion. It's fascinating. General Hayden said to the diplomatic historians, and I was there in the audience, he said, you know, if we hoard our secrets and we sit on them and hunker down, I think was his phrase, then it creates a vacuum of actual information into which the conspiracy theorists and the liars will rush and fill. And so we have an obligation to be as forthcoming as we can, given the limits of protecting sources and methods, given the limits of protecting national security. We have an obligation to let the American people know what we're up to. And so um, I think that was part of his rationale. And here, I think, looking at the Family Jewels, scholars will... I think no longer quite hold them up up here as this great mystery, but rather see them as more prosaic, more of the ordinary, less sort of huge in their expanse. Some of them are actually small in their, I mean, we had, took one defector, Nosinko, locked him up in a secret prison for three years. Well, we're on about year four and a half or five of the current secret prisons around the world, and there's something approaching 100 people in those secret prisons in addition to Guantanamo. Right. So, 
I understand. Uh, were you at the conference where he really, where he made yes. remarks? Yes, I'm one of the annuals, one of the speakers there every year. We sponsor panels. It's our one of our core constituency groups, the diplomatic historians. Well, I heard in, in some recent venue he used the term you just mentioned. We have an obligation uh, to mm -hmm. uh, inform the public to the degree that we can, given the limits of our security right. and operations. And I believe he used the, the phrase that we have a social contract with the American people. That's right. So is that correct? Was that a phrase he used? That was the phrase he used, and he went further. He said that um, we ourselves need to know, the CIA, the CIA ourselves needs to know, that one of the, and that you can see it in the Family Jewels memos, the director didn't know about these operations, some of which were still going on when he asked for the jewels. Top managers didn't know about these programs. The compartmentation, which is so much a part of the secrecy within the protection of sources and methods, meant also the top managers weren't on top of what the agency was really doing. And so it would be very difficult for managers to make sure the programs produce what they're supposed to produce, and they just can continue by inertia the way they do in any bureaucracy. So it was interesting to hear Hayden describe the necessity both for the agency itself to know its own history, for historians to give a more accurate picture, for the American people to have a greater sense of confidence in this intelligence agency, which after all is supposed to be working for us. I think you've given us just extraordinarily valuable insight into how the family jewels look from someone who has followed in national security and intelligence for the number years. of years you have. Let me ask you one final tough question. Sure. And that is as a person who uh, heads an operation which has collected extraordinarily uh, valuable paper, I think, for documents, if you will, mm -hmm. for historians and, and students of government and government people themselves to understand what's going on. What's going to be the impact in years to come of this, the incredible reliance now on email, on electronic communications, some of which finds its way into hard copy, much of it does not. Have, is this something that you have dealt with as a... Absolutely. At the very end of President Reagan's uh, term in office, as he was leaving office, the Iran-Contra scandal, if you may remember, was the exposure mm -hmm. built around Oliver North's emails with his bosses, the National Security Advisors, Poindexter and McFarland. So we inquired what was going to happen to the email. And they said, oh, well, we've printed out the ones about Iran-Contra, but the rest of the backup tapes, they're going to be deleted. We brought a lawsuit. <laughs> it took six years because neither President Reagan nor President Bush 41 nor President Clinton were eager to have their <laughs> email from the White House saved and later to be looked at by historians and by the public. But we won a court decision from the D.C. Circuit that the Supreme Court refused to review, one of the first times they've ever refused a government request, that set a principle that email has to be treated like any other historically government record. If it's historically valuable or administratively or legal or evidentiary value, it has to be saved. And so we forced the National Archives to begin to deal with this huge load of email. Give you a sense of the scale, about 150,000 emails saved from the Reagan White House. About 250,000 unique emails saved from the Bush 41. About 32 million emails saved from the Clinton eight years. Just that's the really exponential increase. And my bet is that even with President Bush not using email at all today, in his White House, there are millions and millions of email. Now, this is an issue. 
How do you save it? How do you preserve it? There's still no archival standard for electronic technology. I mean, remember, I don't know, when I got my first computer that you could carry like a suitcase, it used those big five and three quarter inch floppy disks that genuinely were floppy. They were not hard. And now if you have one of those, your kids wouldn't know what to do with it. It would have, what, 50 KB of space on it? Today you have little thumb drives with three or five gigabytes on them the size of your finger. I mean, the Smithsonian Magazine did a feature once, I think, that began with um, your grandkids in your attic coming upon a horde of little round silver discs saying, wow, what inefficient Frisbees, you know? (laughs) CDs, what we currently listen to music, CDs. Well, that's a transient technology. How do you keep it? Microfilm is still a preservation mechanism because you can hold it up to the light and look at it and know it's a miniature version of what's there. Acid-free paper still will last for hundreds and hundreds of years. But these computer and electronic technologies, they'll disappear. All I can tell you is the National Archives now is trying to save it, and the fact that they're saving it in electronic form means it should be easier to search, easier to retrieve, easier to review, and we'll be able to go through it the way Google goes through websites. But it may be years to come before we can get our arms around that. Interesting. Well, we end, we end our interview with a, with, a, with a question for the public, as it were. Tom, you've been a terrific interview, and, and we really appreciate your coming over today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you, Peter. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.